Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Charlie Foley first got interested in wine when he was studying classics at university. After spells in South Africa and Argentina, he landed a job at Christie's, where he's gone on to become a brilliant and flamboyant auctioneer. Our fascinating chat covers everything from the evolving fine wine scene to how to work a room, Charlie's love of fashion and creativity, to his appearances on Channel 4's The Great Auction. Hey, Charlie, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm absolutely brilliant. How lovely to hear your voice. And you've just been for a run, haven't you, you brave man, on a hot day? Yes, I'm glad there's no video because I look terrible. <laughs> you never look terrible. You're always one of the most stylishly dressed men I know. <laughs> I try, I try. Listen, so much I want to ask you. I mean, I think most people don't know really know what an auctioneer does, particularly a wine auctioneer. So we're going to d- deep dive into that. Neither do I most of the time. Yeah, let's begin with your with your origins, just, you know, where you were born, brought up. I'm, I have a feeling it's somewhere exotic, was it? Uh, if Yorkshire is exotic, then yes. Um, sadly, it's not. My, my parents had just moved back from Florida, so um, I'll never forgive them because I would have a green card and not be paying tax, wouldn't I? But I'd also be a Republican and shooting raccoons on a veranda or something. <laughs> yeah, I could see you doing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so Yorkshire. I was born in York. Uh, we, I was brought up on the moors. Mm. My parents still live there. Um, yeah, so that's sort of how it all started for me. And they were great foodies. They still are, aren't they? Yeah, their food is. Yeah, my dad was a chef a long time ago, um, uh, but he's he's not anymore. But yeah, so he still makes wonderful food, and mm. I've probably got into wine through sort of Sunday lunches, really, by you know him opening something and then we're having something. You know, nothing particularly amazing. My mm. my family are all sort of tea people. My my grandparents were farmers that still are. My grandmother's one hundred and three now. Wow. But, uh, yeah, tea is the tea is the thing in Yorkshire rather than wine, really. <laughs> Where are they farmers in Yorkshire? Uh, yeah, up on just on the moors. Um, I mean, yeah. not at 103, I'm sure. But no, she's not. She's not anymore. And my grandfather passed away. But uh, yeah, still no wine. <laughs> and, and what was your earliest memory of wine? It was sitting drinking with your parents, was it? Yeah, probably. I mean, I probably wasn't, you know, aware of what what I was drinking or what it was, sort of thing. Not until uni did I really get interested in it. Hmm. Um, yeah, but I was certainly, you know. I think for me, wine is the semantics. You know, sitting in the garden with my parents, you know, putting the world to rights hmm. over a glass of wine. It's just sort of a liquid that helps the the occasion and mm. you know i wasn't really interested in the academic side of it until later i mean you studied classics university got first uh, you specialize in the ancient wine trade in greece and rome which is really interesting um, yeah do, do you have any do we have any idea of what the what the greeks and the romans drank uh yeah we certainly in rome we've got more idea because there's more records uh pliny the elder was you know um a great writer on on the subject so we know that they were growing falernian for example which we think could have been Greco de Tufo, um, or it could have been Aglianico. We're not quite sure whether it was right, white or red. Mm. Um, we know that they were making Alban on the slopes of Pompeii, um, and Cacuban was another great variety that they were making. So, so we know lots of these things that were happening through the records, um, and then through amphora finds in particular in the Mediterranean, we know lots more of them. Yeah, so they spread grapevines, those two cultures really, didn't they, around the Mediterranean and, and further afield, I mean, to England for a start. Yeah, well, I mean, it st- started through Phoenicia. That was probably the, the cradle of wine, really, then through Greece, through Rome. Mm. The way it got up through France was the, the French army, really, st- started marching from Provence up towards the UK, particularly under Hadrian when he was trying to conquer the UK. And instead of drinking the water, they would plant 
grapes up along that sort of area in order that the, the Roman army could supply itself with, with uh, wine. So that's why sort of the Rhone Valley and Burgundy became sort of the particular route towards the UK for wine, really. Yeah, and in those days, safer to drink wine than water. And that was still true in the Middle Ages, even into the, the kind of 19th century, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, Edward Gibbon, who declined and fall of the Roman Empire, he thought that the Romans went mad because the uh, lead poisoning through the aqueducts and everything. So mm. you know, probably better to drink wine. Still is, right? I mean, water <laughs> I, <think so. laughs> well, I just, I, I just wonder how the ancients regarded drunkenness. I mean, were they, were they, were they, were they slightly censorious about it? Um, some were, like Galen and Seneca, particularly because, you know, they were on the sort of more um, medical side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the ancient writers like Pliny, uh, they loved it, particularly because uh, wine equals sex. That was the, the key point, really. And if you look at all the frescoes in Pompeii, it was the satyrs and all of the sort of, you know, huge phalluses and things. So that's what, you know, really led to it. And I think there was a, a great quote from Pliny that was something about monstrous dreams of lustfulness, you know, that was related to wine. Um, and have, have you ever seen that great film Fellini's uh, Satyricon, which is about no, but I, that's, but I should, I think. Yeah, you should see that, and it's about this feast where they're all sort of sitting around, like spitting at the um, slaves from a Kylix with this great wine, and then they all just get totally drunk, and you know, proper Fellini sort of like festival of bacchanalia. Really, it's a great film. It sounds like the Grand Bouffe, except they didn't kill, they didn't eat each other, or didn't kill. Yeah, them. exactly. Yeah, no, no uh, carnivorous stuff there going. On. <laughs> uh, it, just wondered what jobs you did post university, and when you joined Christie's. Um, so the wine stuff probably started at university because I was doing classics. So I was doing three hour study time a week and all my friends that I was living with were doing law and medicine and proper things that actually mattered. Um, and so I ended up getting a job in a restaurant, which was the one on top of the Baltic Art Gallery in Newcastle. Mm. Um, and I ended up doing the sort of wine service on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday mm. and buying the wine on a Monday. Um, so I sort of really got interested in, in running the whole wine service. And that was the sort of start of it for me in, in terms of academic interest. And then um, you applied to Christie's? Not immediately. I, I moved to Argentina and South Africa for six months each. So in South Africa, I worked at Steenberg with J.D. Yeah. Pretorius Great. for a while. Yeah, so yeah. that was quite fun. And in Argentina, I worked with a guy called Charlie O'Malley uh, doing wine tours sort of around uh, Mendoza. So, you know, that was really the sort of, you know, start of the sort of geography wine interest uh, part of it. And then the Christie's bit was that was obviously when you got back. But did you apply? Or- yeah, when I got back, I worked for a wine merchant, fine and rare, for a bit. And then I met uh, one of the specialists at Christie at Christie's at a wine tasting, and they had a temp job. And they said, "Hey, you look like our guy. So, do you want to come and uh, try it out?" So I, I took a leap on a temp job, and here I am, eleven years later. <laughs> and what was the, was the job initial to, to train to be an auctioneer, or was it just working in the wine department? Uh, no, just to the admin, you know, just to um, do all the paperwork and stuff. Um, you, you know, auctioneering I've only done for about six years. It, it takes a while. You have to go through the auctioneering school and that sort of thing. So, uh, tick, I've managed to do it. And, and did you apply to do that, or did they say, "Hey, this guy's a bit of a personality. You know, he'll be good at it." Um, you can put yourself forward. I mean, you know, there's, there's different types of auctioneers. So, you know, some some people at head of departments will auctioneer just because it's their specialist interest. Mm. Um, and then there are people who I suppose are a bit more theatrical and will do, you know, sort of charity auctions and different sort of auctions across the company. Yeah. And probably more in the latter category. Yeah, I think you definitely are. You know, I think it's quite boring auctioneers. It's sort of a bit actuarial really you know it sounds like they've been counting in a way right but yeah exactly. well you've got to know the numbers you've got to do the technical stuff and be on the right foot and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. um but then you know most of it is your it's your last sales pitch really it's your, your last opportunity to add atmosphere which adds a little bit of interest but you know that's the idea i think mm-hmm. tell us about your mentors because i know that you worked with david ellsworth late david ellsworth who i liked very much and he died way too young just wonder what you learned from david because he was he was a character as well wasn't he 
Yeah, so David, absolutely sort of wonderful man who just taught me really to work a room. And I think that's so essential in, in the wine trade, just because, you know, that you, you haven't got all of that much time, you've got to expand some energy on, on certain things. But David's way of work going into a room and just being able to sort of speak to people about the right things that sort of turned them on and made them interested about him and about what he was doing. That was a sort of a, an amazing thing to watch. Watching his auctioneering, he was, you know, a famous auctioneer, because it had the sort of wit and charm that sort of made it uh, great. And I, I have this, you know, uh, key, three key things in auctioneering. I say, be quick, be funny, be humble. That makes a good auctioneer. And I think David had all of those. So it was great to watch him. And why is the humility important? So you don't come across as sort of bombastic? Is that the idea? Well, it's not about you. You know, you're the, you're, the, you're the least important person in the room, really. It's about the bidder and the, and the underbidder. Mm. You're just there to sort of orchestrate it. It's a bit like being a, a conductor or a sort of maestro. You know, you're not as important as the, as the members are playing. You're just there to make it all pull yeah. together. So humility is the key. Except that you want people to notice you in a way. I mean, you, are, you know, you're your focus of attention, right? Yeah, of course. You need confidence. You need confidence, but I think a sort of quiet confidence rather than, you know, I'm I'm the most important and what I say goes. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, you also got to meet Michael Broadburn, didn't you? I mean, Michael, uh, you know, he worked for Chris's for years. I mean, he's probably there 50 years, was he? Probably maybe longer. I don't know. He set it up in 1955. He turned up at King Street and he said, I want to set up the wine department. So yeah. they said, okay. <laughs> I mean, I interviewed him in 1986 and, you know, he was a character. He was a very good raconteur. He was, he was yeah. a, remarkably urbane, wasn't he? And, and, and fun. I mean, you, and you got to meet him, what, lots of times? Or was he retiring? Back yeah, I, at the start of my career at Christie's, he worked there. I mean, he was sort of long since retired from running everything, but he was mm. sort of a senior consultant, if you like. You know, he was an a- absolute character, really. A terrible auctioneer. That was the thing about Michael. He was all, always famous for being absolutely appalling on the rostrum. He, he hated it as well. There's a famous story about Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know, where he was bidding in the room and Michael didn't know who he was. So he decided after two of Lloyd Webber's bids to ignore him. So he just totally ignored him. And, and then after the um, auction, he got called into the chairman's office and said, why the hell are you ignoring Andrew Lloyd Webber? And uh, came back to bite him because Lloyd Webber sold his stuff at Sotheby's. Oh, did he? I wonder about that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah. you know, I, I think, but to be honest, he's not a bad judge. I think ignoring Andrew Lloyd Webber was probably what I'd do too. You can't oh, say well, that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he was a great guy. And I remember we did the Avery family cellar down in Bristol and Michael turned up with his little red book and uh, we went through all of the wines and, mm. and watching him taste through these vintages was amazing because he'd lived these vintages mm. and not just in a way that you know somebody sort of goes oh it's a nice summer or whatever you know he he literally remembered about the sort of you know fruit set about different t- times that made this particular vintage great so it was amazing to watch the sort of walking encyclopedia of vintage notes really so that's <laughs> what made him good at his job rather than the auctioneering the auctioneering was that because he i mean he was quite flamboyant wasn't he were you saying he just wasn't that good at at spotting who was in the room and, and reading the room as well yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, he just sort of, I, I don't think he was a sort of a, a details man in that in that instance. Um, mm. He loved the, the making notes and the packing up cellars and all mm. of that sort of stuff. He loved all of the, you know, the, the, the details of, of wine and what made it really interesting. And he loved writing. That was his mm. big thing. I, I'm not sure that he was a sort of a theatrical type, really. <laughs> but you are. I mean, do you remember your first your first solo auction? What was it? No, it was wine, yeah, because, I mean, the way Chrissy's works is that you're a specialist in a in a department. So, you know, my, my love is wine, and that's my department. There is a few auctioneers, and so you get put onto other auctions sometimes. But I was terrible. The first auction, I you know, I thought, I can never do it. And the chief auctioneer was like, oh, my God, what have you done? You know, I was in a terrible blue suit with no, didn't really fit, and the 
tie was hanging down my my neck and uh, I just I was so nervous I couldn't get to grips with anything so I think I did uh, 20 lots and then stood down what and they removed you do they <laughs> no I, I don't know I maybe just sort of looked at somebody and they thought oh we'll put him out of his misery so you, know, you have to grow into it don't you I think you go into anything and I've, I've made an effort and here we are here I am <laughs> so it was wine because you've also done what handbags haven't you and jewellery and art anything yeah, else yeah anything where they need a man in a camp jacket you know that's, that's not the handbags I love you know that's a really great thing and there's plenty of puns you can work on the you know climbing the Himalaya and all these sort of wonderful things and it is it's really you know handbags is a fun department I, I love that industry and it's always well sold mm-hmm. jewelry as well is nice mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not so you know tuned up on old masters and that sort of thing but i, I do love you know cultural stuff so, so i mean i just wonder are an auctioneer's skills transferable i mean you know could, could you could you auction anything well basically or do you need to have in-depth knowledge of the subject to do it really well well, in-depth knowledge helps because, you know, it's the last sales pitch. So I, I always say that an auctioneer can add atmosphere, but not necessarily interest. Mm. That has to happen before an auction and that you, you know, you get somebody interested in the lot and buying it, but you, you're adding the atmosphere to make them go a little bit further. Um, so you can try and sort of, you know, catch an extra bid or, or push it a bit further and start a bidding war, that sort of thing. So, you know, I'd say knowledge is key in order that it is the last sales pitch but really the thing is atmosphere and adding theatre i mean if you've got knowledge do people want you to just throw in a a detail about the wine for example or a lot yeah sometimes it helps and you know the thing about auctions is most people are just tuning in because it's not their job they're just tuning in because it's you know a bit of fun that they're doing or they like buying something it's a hobby for them so Mm -hmm. you've got to make it interesting it's like tuning into tv you wouldn't Mm tune into something that was dry and boring and the person's going to stand there and say here are at 1000 what, what's next you've mm. got to say you know 1000 try 1100 it's mm. the cost of a cup of cappuccino now or you know you just yeah. got to say something that's slightly amusing and what percentage of the people in the room are, are, are punters as opposed to to professional people who are buying for the well i mean almost there's nobody in the room these days you know if the auction's mm. been held on a tuesday at 10 o'clock then you know people have got other things to be doing haven't they so mm. most people are online the bids are in the book um, the bids are on the telephone banks we try and encourage people to come and we always put wines out and nice things and set up the room in a nice way so more people should come to live auctions mm-hmm. but you know the auction scene is changing now there's a lot more online auctions so the, the auctioneer isn't involved at all it's just a sort of ebay style mm-hmm. uh, auction which works well because you can track what's happening over a two-week period um, but live auctions have you know i think in a, in a good way because they're being narrowed down now to key lots that mm-hmm. you know that can be sold with a bit of extra panache so, i well. mean so if, if you're doing if you're doing a, a launch in a room and people are watching at 10 o'clock in the morning they're watching it what on zoom or or some closed circuit uh, so website i don't right. i don't ask me the it they, they run yeah. it through some wonderful thing i don't know what it is but it, it all looks good <laughs> I mean, that, is that hard talking to an empty room i mean knowing that i mean it's, i suppose it's a bit like doing it's a bit like doing an instagram live you know in a way yeah exactly let's put it out there and see what happens i mean you know you've got things to play with like their location will come up so you say the bids in miami the ah. bids in puerto rico and then yeah. you know if it sells to puerto rico you can say vendido or you know just sort of add things or play with the telephone bidders yeah. Um, you know, if it's totally empty room, then yeah, it is really tough. And if you're doing 100 lots, it's not easy. Yeah. Tell us what your your job consists of on a day-to-day basis. Because people obviously see the glamorous bit, which is you in, you know, these amazing clothes, doing the sales <laughs> and being an extrovert. Yeah. But there's quite a bit of admin, isn't there? I mean, you obviously started doing that in the department, but you've still got to do that, haven't you? I'm yeah, just exactly. I mean, that's most of my days. Obviously, I don't post any of that on Instagram because it's mm-hmm. uh, definitely boring. But, mm-hmm. you know, I do enjoy it. Doing Excels is probably most of the mm-hmm. job, you know, doing emails with clients and that sort of thing. Being in sellers or more often than not, being in a warehouse you know is quite a, a key thing so you've just got to sort of get through the slog of preparing everything i mean the, the end game is obviously to sell things in an auction but you know that takes months and months of preparation i mean the people <laughs> bit is obviously the bit you seem to like most is, is the admin bit the boring bit in a way 
Um, you know, it's got to be done, hasn't it? I suppose it's the building blocks. It's probably not my, you know, I'm more of a creative type. So I mm. prefer to write articles about the wine or, you know, do interesting things. Or I run the Christie's Wine Instagram. I love all that sort of stuff. But, you know, all the rest is a building block to that. So mm. I think I've, I've learned over my career that mm. uh, you've got to be interested in the detail as well as the drama. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to tell us a few things that have happened to you in auctions now, because I think Michael Broadbent told me that story about, about Andrew Lloyd. Like, I mean, just what's, what's, what's your proudest moment, the most embarrassing moment, and maybe the funniest thing that's happened to you? And the funniest and embarrassing might be the same thing. I don't know. Yeah, probably. No, the proudest, well, the proudest was probably you were involved in the 1821 Grand Constance that we did uh, in 2021. Yeah. It was 200 years since that great bottle. Um, and, um, you know, I went out to South Africa and sold that. And we didn't know what it was going to go for. We put an estimate of 20,000 Rand on it. Mm. And um, it took half an hour in the room to climb to 420,000 Rand, which amazing. was amazing. Mm. And I just remember that moment. And then it sort of stopped. And I ha- desperate to go to the loo. So I dashed off. The room was in raptures, applauding. So I handed over to Michael Fridjohn. And he talked for 10 minutes about the history of it. Uh, but then the next morning was great because I ran around Stellenbosch in the morning. And uh, about five people stopped me to say, thank you so much for everything you're doing for South Africa. And, you know, they were proud of it happening as a yeah. sort of moment to mark South Africa. So I, I mean, was happy. D- just tell us, you know, we're going back to the other things in a minute. Tell us a bit more about that lot. Because it was amazing, wasn't it? The 18, you know, 1821 historic, obviously. But tell us yep. where the bottle was going. Um, it was destined for Napoleon. So, you know, he was on St. Helena... Um, locked away and mm. he was still buying wine i don't know how you can be sort of in prison but still buying wine but he was his favorite thing was 1811 cognac that's why you have get the napoleon cognacs but he also um bought the grand constance the same as other people were buying george washington george mm. III were buying it so he was buying it uh, but i think he died in may of that year so uh, the harvest won't have finished and he would have never got that bottle mm. so it ended up going to the tabernacle at niederberg so it was um, never shipped no it never shipped so it's um or, or maybe it did end up i think in the end uh, um the Duke of Northumberland's house at Annick Castle. Mm. Um, but in the, it's made its way back to the tabernacle at, at uh, Niederberg, and um, there it lay. So, Did you get to taste it? No, no, nobody tasted it, no. <laughs> what colour was it? It was red, wasn't it? Wasn't it red buscadel? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, you could see it through the bottle. But, the, but you know, the bottle was so old, it was, mm. you know, you, can ba- you could barely see apart from at the top, you can mm. see a bit. Mm. But we did all stand around and look at it with Michael in the, in the tabernacle. <laughs> well, that, was your, that was your proudest moment. What about funniest or, and or most embarrassing? Um, embarrassing. I, I've done, you know, a few charity auctions and they're always, they're always a bit embarrassing because, you know, you get some funny lots and whatever. Um, I did one for a, a, a great charity. It's the Spinal Injuries Charity a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were selling a, um, a villa somewhere. And I, I made a big thing about saying how, you know, how this villa was so amazingly sort of secreted away and you wouldn't be able to get to it and everything. So I made a big thing about this. And then this lady shouted out, Oh, is it accessible? And I said, Oh, no, no, not, not accessible at all. You know, you'll be so secret. You'll be sitting on the veranda. You won't be able to see anything. And then she wheeled her wheelchair back and said, I'll say again, is it accessible? So oh, I mean, I just, I blacked out. I just thought, oh, but why didn't I foresee this? I just thought, Oh, oh God. <laughs> bad, bad. And funniest? Um, funniest, I suppose. Um, oh, well, I, I mean, my key thing is always need the loo when you're on the rostrum because it mm. make, makes you go a bit quicker. But, mm. you know, sometimes it leads you to be not quite as lucid as you should be. So there's a famous port called Coburn and I, um, accidentally call it Cockburn, of course, on the, on the rostrum. And I think David <laughs> shouted out, that's something you need a cream for. So that, that was a moment. <laughs> I'll always remember, but there we are. I mean, you once sold a bottle of 1926 Macallan single malt for 1.2 million for one bottle of whiskey. I yeah. just wonder, you know, do you get nervous when the sums are escalating? And I wonder what it would be like if you were selling 
selling, you know, a Van Gogh or a Monet that sells for sums that are truly astronomical. Yeah, I suppose I I, I just sort of knock the zeros off in a way, you know, because if you start, you know, you always know where the reserve is. So with that McCallum, we started at 800,000. But, Mm. you know, in your head, you just sort of say, oh, it's 80 quid or whatever. So then then you're just sort of climbing up through the digits and, and it's a bit sort of a bit like that you don't really don't really know i mean that was a yeah. sort of bum clencher of a moment there we didn't know where it was going to go and and i was probably a bit nervous about doing that one but you know it worked out in the end and i've lost my record now i think it's gone to 1.5 to somebody else now for, for what yeah. another whiskey from the same vintage yeah, from ah. the same, yeah. So why why is whiskey so expensive um, certain ones are. I mean, that's mm-hmm. rare because there was one barrel, um, mm-hmm. and Michael Dillon did one label. Peter Blake did, did seven, and Valerie Amadei did seven. So you know that was a sort of a rare moment where it was a seventy-five-year-old Macallan, which is you know like the Latour of whiskey. So yeah. there are certain ones where you know if it's at a ghost distillery or a mm-hmm. famous distillery, things mm-hmm. are well collected. I, I just wonder when you're when you're selling something. I mean, do you think that you're working on behalf of the vendor, or are you working on behalf of the people bidding the bidders in the room? Yeah, difficult question. Yeah, um, insightful. It's, I'm always a bit bit of the both, really. Um, so yes, you're on behalf of the vendor, and you're trying to get you know as much money for them, but you know you also know the buyers and the buyers will end up becoming your vendors or, mm. or sometimes already are. So mm. you're, you're trying to get things for them for, you know, a price where, you know, when they see you and sometimes you end up drinking it with them as well. So yeah. you know, sometimes you, so it's, it's a bit of both. You're that sort yeah. of funny middleman where you're, you're trying to be everybody's mate. <laughs> it, yes. It's quite a difficult balancing act in a way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, mm. exactly. I, mean, I, I want talking of you know famous bottlers. I once saw an interview where you said that wine is not an investment piece; it's a passion piece. And I just wonder, you know, do you th- is it worth investing in wine? I mean, there are lots of companies saying, you know, invest with us. You know, your wine will go up more than yeah. a Rolex watch or whatever, or a flat in flat in Holland. Yeah, Park. well, I mean, you know, the, I'm, we're not in that gig. I suppose mm-hmm. the, the auction world is not an, an investment world. I mean, if, if people are buying for investment, that's 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 you know their business, I suppose. But mm-hmm. I, I think that. I like selling to people who love wine mm-hmm. and you've got to enjoy wine to buy it because there is no point really buying anything that you don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully people are drinking what they buy. You know, obviously in some cases that's obviously going to go away and be sold again. Um, but, you know, I'm always interested in sellers where we take a, a nice thing and then the blue chip sort of wines do well. And then there's other things at the end, sort of say like wines from Trimback or interesting things from Spain where, you know, people pick those things off and then if those people are happy to share it with you or have a nice dinner. And, and those are the interesting wines really where, you know, people are drinking them. Well, and, and then maybe they're the interesting collectors and women collectors or maybe I should just say purchasers really. I mean, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're happy to say, hey, I'll try some, you know, Frederick Emile or something like that from Trimback. Yeah, or, exactly. Or, yeah, it's always fun. Exactly. Yeah. And people now, I mean, the investment world's changed, you know, it used to be sort of Bordeaux, Burgundy and, you know, a bit of Barolo, but, you know, now there's other things happening. I mean, look what's happened with Commando G, for example, from mm-hmm. Spain, you know, now that wine is selling for £300 a bottle in, in the wine bars of Tokyo or New York. So, you know, wines like that that are off the radar are becoming more interesting, haven't yet made it to auction because they're not massively secondary market yet. But I think that's going to be the future is really quirky things that are low production. Yeah, I wonder about that. I mean, is, you know, is the, is the secondary market changing? Is it, you know, is it still blue chip? You say these things haven't quite made it to the secondary market yet, whether it be, you know, Commander G or, 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 I don't know, some of the top wines from Argentina or, or, or Chile or indeed South Africa. I mean, not just... Yeah, it, it certainly is changing. I mean, just this week, we did an anniversary sale for Vineyard of Chadwick mm-hmm. um, and sold some old vintages from them. And, you know, people love these things because they can't get them. And, and we did a little lunch, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of it with Patrick mm-hmm. McGarrah and things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people love it when they can experience things and, and they find out 
that story about why it's interesting. We did the same last year with Tawara Limit. Mm. So f- things that are fun and you can sort of push the envelope a little bit of what is blue chip and what is collectible. Mm. Um, I think that's really what excites me. Well, that's quite an exciting, well, you, you, precisely, I, I like that word. I was about to say that. I was going to say it's quite an exciting bit of your job where you're not yeah. just selling stuff that we all know. I mean, you know, anybody can sell Lafitte, frankly, but, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that you don't, it's not important to have a good auctioneer there, but yeah. it almost sells itself. Whereas if you're selling Tawara Limit or you're selling Vignedo Chadwick or you're selling, yeah. you know, Lacrae per se from, from, from Argentina, it's a bit more work involved, isn't it? Probably a bit more fun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's at a lower price point. So, you know, you've got a bit more people to play with, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But it is a bit more fun because you're telling a story that you've never told before. um, And often you get to taste the wine as well because the winemaker is interested in in making it work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's always nice. And you find a different group of buyer. You know, often these people are younger. Um, You know, often they're in sort of some fantastic place like Tokyo or, Mm -hmm. you know somewhere and then you can or san francisco lots of buyers there so you know often these people are fun and interested in you and why you're selling it yeah yes i want to talk to you a little bit about fakes because there was a lot of publicity around rudy canoan and 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 other people who'd sold fake wines not only through at auction and and uh, uh, but also through fine wine merchants um is it still a case of buyer beware caveat emptor i mean you know is it, what can you, i just wonder what you can do to guarantee providence and try and make it as yeah well not really i mean the, the, i can't speak to the sort of old the old days when i wasn't involved in in the auction business i suppose the you know everything was a bit different and people didn't know as much you know mm-hmm. since the the rudy thing everybody knows a lot more mm-hmm. you know in terms of guaranteeing provenance for new wines there's a lot more that goes on so like for example palmer's new bubble proof tags mm-hmm. you know those things are happening mm-hmm. drc have got the sort of new uv light things going on so there's all of these sort of things coming through of course that doesn't help for old wines and so Mm -hmm. key to that really is provenance and we've just got to trace exactly where everything's coming from Mm -hmm. so you've just got to go back to the basics of can we ask for your purchase invoice and if you don't look like where the purchase invoices come from then you've got to try further so you know if you're Mm -hmm. selling drc you want it to come from corny and barrow if it's in the uk you want it to come from sanya if it's in in uh, Italy, you want it to come from the agent in whichever country it is, or mm-hmm. direct from the domain, which you know is rare, but you know it sometimes happens. So provenance is the key, and then just making sure that you have experienced checkers looking at everything. So, you know, I've spent eleven years at Christie's. I've seen certain things, but I haven't seen everything. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, further up the chain you go, the more people have seen. Really. And and are there still a lot of fakes out there? Do you think I mean, there's still a lot of Rudy wines out there? I know he's out now as well. You know, he's, yeah. he's out of prison and, you know, who knows what he's going to do next. Mm. I mean, yeah, these wines must be out there and it's it's up to us really to weed these things out of the mm. market. You know, there's so many things where we just say, look, we're not happy with the provenance of this and we're not selling it. So then think these things just get rejected. But the difficulty is there will be someone who will sell it. And that is that is the problem that, you know, there are big names like Christie's and Sotheby's that won't do these things because our legal department certainly don't want the hassle of yeah. you know, the wine department, which is the smallest cog in our wheel compared mm. to, you know, the art departments. But there are lots of other smaller auction houses and traders who who might want the turnover from these horrible things and, and they will take them on. So that's the sad situation there. Because, I mean, what sort of comeback does a punter have if he or she buys a bottle of something, you know, DRC, let's say, and it turns out, you know, they take it to Maureen Downey, who's a, you know, wine sleuth, and she mm. says, oh, God, that's a terrible fake. You know, where'd you buy this? And they say, I bought it at Christmas. I'm not saying that's ever happened. But mm. can they get the money back? Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know situations where these things have happened, but you know, in in the case of Christie's, I mean, I think there would be a negotiation of something if somebody wasn't happy with something, mm-hmm. and then they'd see what happens. We'd have to do an investigation to see where things were happening, where things had come from. The benefit of Christie's is if it's been sold through a Christie's auction before, which mm-hmm. by and large, because we've been running for sixty years, things have been. Mm-hmm. And you can go back into the archives and see exactly where things are from. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can trace a lot of things and s- see exactly what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the bigger worry is probably, you know smaller 
smaller auction houses where, you know, they won't take things back if there's a particular issue. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder in a way whether Rudy did the fine wine world a, a favour, that it suddenly made people realise that there was a, a problem, you know, that these wines were being created on, on a significant scale. And therefore, it's made people a bit more careful. I mean, I don't mean just auction houses, but also punters as well about what they're buying. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, yeah, I mean, he was a, a confidence trickster, really, wasn't he? And he's mm. sort of taken everybody for a ride. But people that were, you know, willing to sort of listen i suppose and 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 this things happened and and you're probably right that it's it's blown it out into the fresh air which is always the best place for anything i I mean you know he was hiding in plain sight i mean if you watch the film which i'm sure you have done i think someone said what do you do and he said i think he said i scam people or something like that really wow god is this the sour grapes thing yeah i mean it's amazing and they just laugh it's amazing amazing and amazing that he's out you know he should just be sort of in there forever but you know, some, the American penal system. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, what sort of wines do you buy yourself? I mean, you know, do do you buy do you buy stuff at auction? Do you buy fine wines? I mean, are, do are I you buy fine of, wines yeah. no, on my salary? No, yeah. I don't. <laughs> uh, no, I only drink fine wines. If, uh, this is a key a key point, guys. If any, if there's any young guys in the trade, always make friends with a a wealthy older man. You know, I think that's that's really interesting. You'll be a bit sore, but, but you'll never regret it. That's the key point. <laughs> That's the only way to drink fine wine is you know, if someone else is paying. <laughs> um, me, myself, I just drink, you know, interesting things. I drink a lot of South African wine. I love South African wine. Mm. Spain, um, a lot of the new world, you know, uh, French wines that are sort of lower level. I like things like Bandol, Trevignon, these sort of things. I mean, they're a bit sort of fine wine, really, but... Uh, but, you know, anything really at a lower price point that I think is quirky. That's why. I mean, well, you know, we've talked a little bit about this already, but, you know, where, what are the fine wines of the future in a way? The, the wines that, I'm not saying people should be investing in, but things they should be buying now because they can get them at good prices. You mentioned South Africa, you've mentioned Bondol, anywhere else? Yeah. Well, it's supply and, supply and demand, really. That's always been the key. So anybody that, uh, you know, it hasn't always been supply and demand because Bordeaux makes a lot of volume. But mm-hmm. in, in why is Burgundy the darling of the auction world? Because they make less quantities. The mm-hmm. same as, you know, why David and Nadia Shenans are interesting or, mm-hmm. you know, other things from other regions. If you make less bottles and you make fewer wines, it's always yeah. fun. So if you, if you, when you have three wines listed on your, on your portfolio, then obviously people think you're more of a fine wine producer. If you've got 20 wines, then you're obviously more of a commercial producer. So yeah. I think producers that I'm intrigued by, things in Sicily could be fun in the future. Mm-hmm. Norella Mascalesi up on Etna, mm-hmm. there's a few mm-hmm. things there where people mm-hmm. are doing small production. Um, Italy is a, a huge area that, that really is a bit of an untapped potential. Apart mm-hmm. from Barolo and the Super Tuscans, there's plenty of things that could be interesting. But, you know, the difficulty is the native grape varieties um, and the, there's too much production. What, pronouncing them, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, people understand Cabernet, but they don't necessarily understand Aglianico. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think Spain, you know, you've mentioned Commander Jay, but I think the wines of Rioja and Rivera, I mean, not just because I write about them, but I think, you know, Vega Sicilia has a good market, so does Bungus, yeah. but that's kind of it. You know, I mean, there are not many wines. Yeah, I mean, I'd love if you, and Remel Uri and these sort of things had more of an impact. And, mm. you know, what he's doing there with Toa-specific wines is, mm. is much more interesting, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rioja is a, a fun region because, you know, Tondonia is probably the only... Tondonia, Mugo, and, you know, Cune are probably the big things on the secondary auction mm. market. But, mm. you know, less Tondonia these days because, you know, there's now so so much demand for it mm. that Maria Lopez can't mm. release anymore. You know, she's Particularly stuck. the whites, right? I mean, yeah, the whites, exactly. Yeah. I mean, just can't find any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- tell us about charity auctions. You mentioned the one you did, which was your most embarrassing moment about whether the thing was accessible or not. But yeah. are, are, are these charity auctions different from normal auctions? Yeah, exactly. Well, you've got to be funny. I mean, you know, it's after an, after a dinner. It's usually between the sort of main and the dessert where everybody's had a bit of drink. And, mm. you know, everybody in their room hopefully knows they're there to support the particular mm. charity. Um, and so it's your moment really to make some money for that charity. So, you know, I always try my best. You always have to 
make a few jokes and, and do, do less lots. If, you know, if there's a silent auction as well, you're there to big that up, but then do sort of seven lots. And they're usually sort of holidays or, you know, money conic buy experiences really, which are always fun. So easy to get people to bid in a sense. Yeah, hopefully. If, got, if there's nice things, nice things on offer and, mm-hmm. and, that, and you've got a nice crowd in the room and you can, mm-hmm. you know, work out your room really. That's where working out a room is really the key thing. That's what I learned from David because you're suddenly like, why does this person want it? Is their mm-hmm. wife in the room and she doesn't want them to have it? And you can mm-hmm. use that a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, what can you use in the room to make this funny for everybody mm-hmm. else? Mm-hmm. And what about celebrity sellers? I mean, you know, you said that Andrew Lloyd Webber seller went somewhere else because he was a no with Michael, but you've yeah. sold others. You, I mean, you've sold, Christy sold the Sir Alex Ferguson seller, didn't they? Yeah, we did Fergie. Yeah, yeah. I, I joined just after Fergie. So a uh, funny story about David, actually, when we were walking along Piccadilly and, um, you know, there's masks you see with the Queen or, or mm-hmm. Prince Charles or King Charles. Um, and then anyway, he saw one of Fergie and he, he put it on his face and he, so he texted it to Fergie and uh, Fergie came back saying, I don't make a fucking penny on that. <laughs> it was a hilarious moment about David. So uh, are they different? As, as, are celebrity seller sales different or is it just another sale? There's always a bit of a premium, I suppose. Sing- you know, there's a move towards single owner sales in auction. If you do a various owner sale in order to get to your sort of, you know, budget for the, the sale, then, you know, it's, it's trickier because you've got, 20 or 30 or 50 vendors mm-hmm. if you've got one person it's easier obviously to deal with one person um, and if they're a famous name then they have a bit of a premium so there are celebrity people who collect wine mm-hmm. and these things don't come up for market very often but they don't sign the bottles or anything do they like that or sometimes what? they do i think ken hom did when we did him did yeah. fergie i don't know if fergie did everything i think he yeah. did the drc and the petrus um, yeah yeah some people well, do yeah that's worth having isn't it yeah, <laughs> well, it, it is if you like if you like Man United, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, you've mentioned this already about bidders, but I just wonder how much of your job is 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 psychology. You've talked about reading a room. Just tell us a bit more about that, about how you do it. I mean, bidders, you know, a bidder is not a bidder is not a bidder. That bidders are very different, aren't they, in terms of their personality and the way they like it. Well, I mean, the, the, the most interesting thing is always the most important person is not your buyer, it's your underbidder, because you remember that that person has, still has money to spend. So, um, you know, if you know who the underbidder is in the room, then you mm. can, you know, move them on to something else. If it's online, obviously it's more tricky, mm. but you have to remember their location or what their number is online. And then you can say, look, this could also be of interest to you if you're still there. That's of thing so the underbidder is always the most important because they're the person that bids up and they're the person that still has money to spend so the underbidder is the person who's not got the lot but they've yeah. still got cash and you know they're bidding and they could be bidding on something expensive right exactly exactly yeah. so they're the important person in the room it's you know it's easier if there's people in the room and you can sort of play with them and you know you can sort of make jokes about certain mm-hmm. things or mm-hmm. hopefully you know them a bit and you know the reason they want something so mm-hmm. you know it's always a nice thing when there's people in the room yes it's very tough if there's no one in the room at all <laughs> tell us a little bit about the channel four program you're on the, the great auction i just wonder i mean you're kind of tv natural i'd imagine oh, but, thanks. Um, <laughs> are you enjoying it is it fun yeah it's fun i filmed it back last year so it's on now tuesdays at eight o'clock plug <laughs> um yeah so they count, contacted me through instagram and said look we've wanted to do this for a while um but we don't want sort of you know the usual run-of-the-mill stuff daytime tv auction mm. stuff so we're doing it as a prime time thing mm. um and yeah i've sold various things elton john's pinball machine celebrity hair that went for a lot of money didn't it to the guy who owns pimlico plumbers or something like that was it oh, yeah. yeah fantastic i loved it and it's a great opportunity for puns you know i had all of the you know don't let the sun go down on this madam that's you know, it's all <laughs> that sort of stuff so yeah no it's been great fun and uh, it's been a great to watch how they've edited it you know uh, and will there be a second series Hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah. Are you watching it? Get the viewing yeah. figures out. I, I, well, I, I did watch a clip you sent me. That looked really good, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> there, was yeah, a, there was a guy with tattoos talking about skulls. Yeah, I didn't do that day, but yeah, I mean that's amazing, isn't it? What people collect is so fantastic, you know. Well, it's the stuff that Christie sort of doesn't do, but it's a nice, a nice sort of seg into these these sort of quirky, really fun things that are going on in the collectibles market. <laughs> 
Tell us about your clothes. I mean, we've, we've, we have mentioned those, and you once joked that four-fifths of an auctioneer's income should be spent on clothes. <laughs> you dress in a fantastic way. I like dressing not quite as outrageously as you, but I like dressing colourfully. Just tell us where you buy your clothes from. I'm never going to tell you that, Tim. I think you've asked before, but I don't want to tell about a tasting the same shirt as you. That would be other <laughs> No, thanks. <laughs> um, I get a lot of stuff on the sort of internet, and then I have things altered or, you know, made for me. Um, I'm going to an Indian wedding in, in um, August, and a lady in New Delhi is making the Katani for me. So, you know, I have things that I just like. I, I come up with an idea in my head of what I want and then sort of go out and search for these things, really. Um, yeah, so... A little bit too flamboyant sometimes, probably. But it is the fact that you, you know, that's part of your personality. But you, you can not only get away with doing it, but are known for it. Does that show that the auction world is changing? And I can't imagine Michael Broadbent would have worn stuff like that. No, Michael's very Savile Row, but he had the money for Savile Row. I don't have the money for Savile Row. So, but you know, the world has changed. You know, we didn't have Vinted and these sort of things before. There was, Mm -hmm. you know, eBay didn't exist in the same way. So, you know, it's wonderful now because if you if you've got the time and the inclination, you can look for these things and Mm -hmm. and sort of think, oh, that'll work with this. So, yes, you need to have a creative idea but but you have the opportunity now to find these things yeah and i think you were saying that that, that clothing and it was a way of showing creativity but also confidence, yeah, a bit of confidence i think yeah. isn't it that i i'm the sort of person who has the confidence to wear this I mean, I yeah that exactly well. yeah otherwise you know you get the standard sort of blue suit or a you know gray gray or brown suit you know it's the sort of standard things that happen in the wine trade all red trousers you know that's mm. the, the other one but you know i think yeah color adds confidence and you know the ability to wear these things is not everybody's Thing. And I always think the man should wear a brooch. Why doesn't the lapel is so boring? Well, you know, you should have something on it. You know, mm. it's just there. Mm. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a tie wearing person. I think that, you know, wear fun things instead. Really. Yeah, your shirts are amazing. Yeah, oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Listen, tell us, how do you get away from wine? I mean, what are your, your you, I mean, like you told me that at the weekends you switch your emails off for a start. So you're not, a, you're not a workaholic, right? No, no. God, is anybody in the wine trade a workaholic? <laughs> probably well, maybe the successful people, if you earn yeah. more than me, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I read a lot. I've probably got about 2,000 books or something. I'm, I'm the, you know, I read every day. I read before bed. It sort of switches me off. That's my big thing. Mm. I run a lot. That sort of takes out my aggression and energy on the on the pavement. That's And uh, see friends a lot, do a lot of theatre. You know, living in London, and, you know, that's a great thing because you can just rock up at the theatre and 20 quid and you see some great stuff. So. Anything good you've seen recently? Guys and Dolls at the weekend. That Isn't is that amazing. Yeah. If you haven't seen it with the stage. I've seen it twice. I, I, I thought it was so good. I saw it f- f- sitting down. I went back to do the promenades. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. What they've done with the theatre is great. And I've just booked tickets yeah. for um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, as much as you dislike his music. he did, He's done a second Phantom, Love Never Dies, which came out a few years ago, I think. But anyway, yeah. so I've got tickets to the concert version. And then I just bought the book that Frederick Forsyth wrote. So I've just, I, re- I read that in a day yesterday. And I was just like, oh, it's great, fun. Well, it sounds like maybe you should engineer a chat with Andrew Lloyd Webber. He sold all his wine now, hasn't he, I think? Yeah, he sold his wine. He still buys other things, I think. He's, you know, an art sort of guy. And uh, and uh, and I, I'd like also to meet Cameron Mackintosh. I think that would be great. I think he's a wi- he's a wino as well, but, you know, great theatrical impresario. I mean, and you also like matching wine to TV shows, don't you? Like Succession. <laughs> I've done that before, before, you know. If you're watching Emily in Paris, I think you can only drink Prosecco, can't you? It's sort of, you know, thin, insipid and, and not what's going on. But, and what about <laughs> Succession? What did, you drink? what did you drink with Succession? I don't, I don't actually have Now TV, but I, isn't Succession, you'll have to tell me, isn't it a Cabernet show, I think? It seems like a... I, Serious brooding sort of it's thing. It's probably a Napa Cavaday show, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Yeah, glossy as well and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. No, I need to watch it. Everyone keeps going on about it. Mm-hmm. I must. <laughs> and, and just tell us about the future. I mean, are you going to stay with what you're doing now? I mean, are you still enjoying it? The million dollar question, isn't it? No, I love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, Chris's is one of those companies you either work there for three years or you're a lifer. Um, you know, and it's one of those things that just gets under your skin. You know, you enjoy it. They allow you to be who you want to be and do what you want to do. 
um, as long as you sort of do your job, it's you know a great company to work for. And, and I'm doing all my other little things on the side. So fingers and pies. I think that's the key thing everywhere, isn't it? So that's that's your game too. <laughs> fingers and pies. Fingers and yep. pies. I like that. No, it's fantastic. Anyway, thank you for sharing so many insights about. I've learned masses doing this. It's fun, isn't it? Uh, yeah. About the world of auctioneering. It's just fantastic, and you do do it brilliantly. And Tuesday nights, eight o'clock. Yeah, on Channel Four. People can watch it. Yeah, exactly. Watch that. Exactly. Or well, you can't watch it this week because you're in South Africa. So I can't, but other people can. Yeah, exactly. They should. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. No problem. See you later. Bye. Bye. I really enjoyed that. A fascinating and very honest insight into the way that auction houses sell wine. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the journalist Amanda Barnes, author of the groundbreaking South American Wine Guide. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week.